Since Anthony is here today, this is going to be a little shorter than usual. It was either shorten the sermon or do confession with no forgiveness. <laughs> the Bible is full of different types of writings. There are poems like Song of Songs. There's apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation. There are bios like the Gospels, epistles like Romans and 1 Corinthians. But the type of literature that we pay the least amount of attention to are the writings of the prophets, which is ironic because the prophetic writings are the biggest part of the Old Testament. If you flip open the Old Testament, chances are you're going to end up in the prophets. If you flip open a Sunday bulletin, probably not. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we don't talk about the prophets much. One of them is they just had very bizarre ways of communicating their message. Isaiah walked around naked. Ezekiel went on a diet of barley cakes baked over cow manure. My personal favorite is in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah wants to make a point about Israel's unfaithfulness, so he hides his underwear under a pile of rocks and leaves it until it becomes really dirty. I didn't write it. But it's also because the prophets make us a little bit uncomfortable. They make a kind of claim on us. They say things we're not supposed to say, and they point out things that we'd rather just keep hidden. I won't ask you for a show of hands, but today's reading from Amos should have made you a little bit uncomfortable. Is Amos talking about people like me? And the prophets are all different. They lived in different places, different times, wrote about different things. But what they all have in common is they give us a kind of vision. They don't tell us the future, but they give us a different perspective on what the world looks like. We could say they show us what God's perspective on things looks like. And they do that in two primary ways. You can usually put them in one or the other basket. The first way they change our vision is by criticizing. The prophets look at the stories we tell about ourselves and say, this is actually not what's happening. You've told yourself this story to make yourself feel a certain way, but it's actually not true. If you think back to when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh has a story he tells, that he is in charge, he can bend time, he doesn't depend on anyone. And Moses comes in and criticizes the story and says, you're actually not looking at the whole picture. The second way that prophets can change our vision is by energizing. And this is saying that the way things are now is not the way things have to be. If you think to the story of the exile when the Israelites are deported from their homeland, they think the covenant is over. But Isaiah comes and reminds them the covenant still exists, they will get to go home someday. Every valley filled in and every mountain brought low. So Isaiah invites the people to see that God's perspective is not their perspective. So that's what prophets do. They criticize, this is not what's happening, or they energize, this is not the way things have to be. Now last week we were introduced to Amos, who's one of the prophets, and I gave you a very brief sketch of his historical context, so I'll give you an even briefer one this week. Amos lived as a farmer in the 8th century BC. He lived in the southern kingdom, but was called as a prophet to the northern kingdom. And the really important thing you need to know about Amos, if you don't know anything else, is he lived during a time of immense wealth. 
That's the story the Israelites tell themselves. We have peace, we have prosperity, we have everything perfect. What do you think Amos does? Does Amos criticize or energize? He criticizes. Let's walk through today's text and look at what he criticizes them for. Today's reading, you'll notice, is addressed to the people who are at ease in Zion. Zion refers to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, this is the northern kingdom. So already you have a kind of setup here. It's addressed to people who have power and influence, and you don't have to worry about anything. They lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches. And remember, Amos is a farmer, not someone prone to lying on ivory beds. He's a manual laborer, someone who works with his hands. The implication is that the people he's writing to don't actually work. They just profit off other people's work. Amos says they drink wine from bowls. And maybe you hear this and think the word for bowl is actually something like glass. It is not. These are bowls of wine. <laughs> they anoint themselves with the finest oil. They have special oil, and instead of using a little bit, they douse themselves in it. And then here's the most important line at the very end. They are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph refers to the northern kingdom, and the ruin of Joseph refers to the poverty and inequality that's all around them. The problem is not the ivory beds or the bowls of wine. The problem is they don't know how to grieve. Now, so often when we think about sin, we think about actions, we think about behaviors. In the medieval period, there was that famous list of the seven deadly sins, envy, lust, greed, etc. They're all things that we do. And we've internalized that definition in many of our churches. When you confess your sins, you're confessing the bad stuff you did. You knew it was bad, you knew it was harmful, and you thought, well, buckle up, here we go, let's do it. But when the prophets like Amos talk about sin, when Jesus talks about sin, that's really not what they talk about. When you read the Gospels, you notice that Jesus is not really concerned with people who do bad things. He's more concerned with people who see suffering, who see evil, who see oppression, and do nothing. They're people who can't be bothered by the world around them. In today's Gospel reading, Jesus tells a parable about a person like this, a rich man who feasts sumptuously every day while a man starves outside his door. And what does the man do wrong in the story? Well, nothing. He doesn't do anything. That's what happens when you have a society in which no one can grieve. They can't imagine any other life than the way things are right now. They see suffering and evil and they think, well, that's just the world that we live in. How often do we say something similar? So to get back to our prophetic model, grieving is a way of criticizing the way things are. It's a way of saying these outcomes are not inevitable. The man starving outside the gates of the rich man's house is not supposed to be there. The crushing income inequality that Amos calls the ruin of Joseph is not just the way the world works, but they're wrong. They're scandalous. And so we grieve to call people's attention to the things that happen outside of our own immediate experience. 
But grieving is also a way of energizing. Because what do we find when we look outside the gates of our cul-de-sac? And what do we find when we put down the bowl of wine and get off our ivory bed? We find the poor, the marginalized, and those whom we find it easiest to ignore. And wherever they are, that's where we find Jesus too. And wherever Jesus is, a whole new world is possible. Should that make us comfortable? No, it should actually make us very uncomfortable. But it should give us hope. Which is good, because comfort can't save us, but hope can. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.